if you're the kind of person who believes that there can't be an accident with a nuclear weapon because doctrine tells you when to use them and you have certain protocols in place that make sure there's not going to be an accident, you're wrong. I mean, that's not correct. That's not backed up by history. And so with that in mind, it's like, obviously, the only solution is to get rid of all of the nuclear weapons. And you just have to think about what would motivate governments to do that. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McCalvin. Howdy, y'all. How's everybody holding up? What a time to be alive. It's not often that we can say right here, right now, we are living in a time that all of humanity will remember. We are sharing a global moment that will go down in the history books uh, as probably one of the most significant in humankind. I'm not going to pile on here and try to add more words of wisdom or unsolicited advice or inspirational words because I think we're almost drowning in that to an extent. For anyone that's on social media, you can't swipe through without uh, bumping into some sort of motivational quote or one of us silly influential athletes trying to shove some poem of inspiration down your throat. But I do think it's important that we all continue to band together and support each other. And that would be my one message is I hope all of y'all are doing well. I hope you're staying healthy, both physically and psychologically, emotionally, mentally. I think that's really one of the major challengers here is even if you don't happen to catch coronavirus, COVID-19, the impacts emotionally can be pretty significant. I've talked to plenty of people that have said they're struggling with anxiety and just the, the mental health aspects of a silent killer sweeping the globe. This week on the podcast, I chat with Sarah Bidgood, who's an expert, one of the leading authorities on another dark cloud that hangs over humanity, which is nuclear weapons. Uh, this is certainly a little off the beaten path of, of uh, our typical guests, but boy, I, I enjoyed this conversation as much as just about any of them because it is different and it is important. And I really enjoyed the <laughs> experience of feeling like I was just getting run around in circles by someone intellectually. Sarah is as sharp as you'd expect someone in her field. And um, it was just such a pleasure to to learn from her. I must say, as I walked into this interview, I felt a little sheepish because I wasn't sure how someone who does such important, such large-scale work as nuclear nonproliferation might view someone in my position, someone who is a professional recreator. Would she actually take me seriously? Um, as luck would have it, she is married to Brad Copeland, who is also in my field, so I had a feeling that 
um, she wasn't totally going to look down on me. And as luck would have it, that wasn't the case at all. And we talk a little bit about why she does take jobs, such as my job or Brad Copeland's job. Seriously, Brad Copeland being the all-star mechanic of Kate Courtney. I hope you all enjoy this uh, rather unique conversation um, that's certainly on the nerdier side. I absolutely learned an enormous amount, and I thought we would release this one now just because we're dealing with global issues, and this is one that is always there. You know, COVID-19 will come and go. Nuclear weapons are here to stay. Um, Well, not if Sarah can help it, but more on that in a minute. Thank you all for listening, and thank you to 99PlusCBD for being presenting partner of this episode. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, we're all dealing with some really trying times. Whether you have been directly impacted by this virus or not, the dark cloud, this scourge, is hanging over everybody. We're all having to change our lifestyles. We're all having to make sacrifices. Many are losing their jobs. Others are unsure if they'll be losing their jobs. And some know they'll keep their jobs but are still feeling pain in other ways. I'm not going to try to pretend that CBD is going to ward off coronavirus. We sure as heck don't know anything about that. We hardly know anything about coronavirus, period, let alone how to treat it. But I will say, treat yourselves well during this time. Take care of yourself. Get yourself some bath bombs. Take a hot bath. Be sure you get good sleep. Pick up some of 99 Plus's capsules. Uh, That's my go-to use and reliance on 99 Plus as, as a sleep aid. And if you're doing some home projects like I am or, you know, working out at home, delving into new hobbies, maybe you're picking up running, maybe you're you're picking up some other new physical activity, be sure to take care of that body of yours. Uh, 99 Plus has some salves that will go a long way in treating those random aches and pains that might come from, oh, I don't know, scraping the popcorn treatment off of your ceilings. That's what I'm going to be doing in a few days. I have a feeling I'm going to be getting some weird crooks in my neck, etc. If you'd like to try some 99 plus CBD, please go to 99.plus slash Payson and you'll get yourself 20% off. Many of us will be coming on some more challenging economic times moving forward, some more extreme than others, but 99plus will be maintaining that 20% off discount code so that y'all can more easily get your hands on the stuff that helps me live a better, healthier life. Go check it out. 99.plus slash Payson. Thank y'all for listening. We are sitting in, not technically Monterey, Mm-mm. Pleasant Grove. Pacific. Pleasant Grove. It, is I, it is pleasant. Pacific Grove? Most yeah. Pleasant Grove of them all. <laughs> what am I thinking of? Pleasant. Anyway, it's been a long drive. Pacific <laughs> Grove. I should know because we're overlooking the dang Pacific. Mm-hmm. Literally. Uh-huh. But our overlook is pleasant, so it's confusing. It is confusing. Um, chomping on some pizza. To my right is... My second favorite mechanic in the world, 
To my left, my second favorite mustache in the world. I don't know. I don't know who my favorite mechanic is. I my favorite mechanic is whoever. It's, like, me, it's whoever my mechanic is that year. Okay, that's fair. Okay. That's fair. Um, I'm just being politically correct right now. That's good. That's good to hedge a little bit. Yeah. 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 Brad, second best mustache in mountain biking. <laughs> um, but we don't care about Brad tonight. I'm sitting across from Sarah, Brad's wife, and uh, I'm so excited. I've been thinking about this conversation for for quite a while. Um, I'm gonna try to try to deliver your one of your, I guess it's your title. I don't mm-hmm. know how you feel about that. Your job description without messing it up, but it might be easier if you just run us through everything um, in a minute. But my understanding is, among many other things probably what you're most known for is being the director of Eurasian Nonproliferation at James Martin Center of Nonproliferation. Roughly, sort of. Roughly, and there's more. Yeah. (laughs) So we are a think tank that's part of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. Yes. Is that related to Middlebury back in Vermont? Yes, it is. So um, we're actually like where most of the graduate programs are for Middlebury in Vermont and um, just like at Middlebury in Vermont, there's a big language focus and sort of focus on international things mm-hmm. um, at the school here in Monterey. And so that's we're sort of a think tank that is affiliated with the Institute and is part of the Institute. So it's many, many, many names and lots of commas and sort of authorial interruptions in the mm-hmm. title. Yeah. Did you go to Middlebury? Um, I went there for study abroad. But I went okay. to Wellesley as an undergraduate. Wellesley. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just rolling through this also. Mm-hmm. You have, is it a bachelor's in Russian? Yes. The language. Yes. Language and literature. From Wellesley. Mm-hmm. You have a master's in Rustra- Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies from North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Yes, where I met my sweet, my really? sweet hubby. Yep. Wait, is that where you went to school? Mm-hmm. That's where I went to school. Ah, mm-hmm. Wow. We're Tar Heels. How fortuitous. I know. Okay. Also, you have a master's in non-proliferation and terrorism studies from the Middlebury Institute yeah. that we just mentioned. Exactly. Um, she's gone to school. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I, With all of those formalities out of the way, uh, how did you head down that path? How did you decide that you were interested in nuclear war dynamics? Mm. Um, it's a question with many answers, but... The main one is that, you know, I, I had this background in Russian and I studied Russian and um, I, I kept saying to myself when I was kind of growing up that I, I didn't want to go into academia, which is ironic because I now basically work in academia. But um, I really wanted to do something that felt like it was relevant to international security, that was relevant to improving U.S.-Russia relations, but I couldn't exactly figure out what that was. And so that's part of all of the school was like, And how do I do this? Um, But I had been working in publishing. Um, I worked for a physics journal for several years. And um, a lot of different things kind of happened during that time period that got me thinking this would be of interest. So one of them was that um, the Iran nuclear deal, which the U.S. has just sort of abrogated, um, was being negotiated during that time. Abrogated meaning rollback? Meaning that we are not, um, you know, since it's not a treaty, it's a it's a, an agreement. Um, you know, people say we're violating the treaty, but we're actually just not abiding by the terms of the agreement anymore. Mm. So we've sort of abrogated that. 
And um, yes, but you're exactly right. We are no longer implementing the treaty. And as a result, Iran is, you know, rolling back their implementation of the treaty. That yeah. was actually one of my questions. Mm. Abrogated was not part of the structure of my question. <laughs> it wasn't? But we'll get there <laughs> down the line. That's a wonderful word. I'm an English minor. For... Me too. No, go. seriously. I learned a lot of new words from her. Did you, were you an English minor? I was. Really? Okay. Because I took a lot of... Um, Poetry classes, <laughs> you know Brad's poetry. It's, it's well known. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, wonderful. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, uh, I'm very excited that I've literally learned a new word in the first seven minutes. That doesn't happen very often. I'm so glad I could gratify you in that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway. Uh, Gonna, oh yeah, so I, wanna... I was doing that. Yes, and then I and then that's how I sort of got interested in, you know, maybe doing something nuclear related. But this was also, um, you know, we moved out here in 2014 for me to go to school, and it was sort of at the same period of time when the Boston Marathon bombings had happened, which, as you might remember, were perpetrated by a person from the Caucasus, a Caucasian national. And so it got me thinking. You know, these are the kinds of issues where somebody who has Russia expertise can really do something, you know, quite relevant, um, which hadn't been the case for a while. For a long time, it, it, you know, everybody who was kind of going into the security and the nonproliferation space was doing, you know, uh, China work or, um, you know, they had learned Farsi or Arabic or something like that. So this is all, in some, in some ways, my involvement in the field has been a direct result of the crisis in U.S.-Russia relations that has kind of created an opening for somebody who has my background. Yeah. I guess at a more basic level, I'm curious why, I mean, do you have a family background that kind of pushed you in this direction? Or because, I mean, all of us listen to the news yeah, and we hear, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name, the Iranian dude who we just took out. Uh, oh, Soleimani? Soleimani. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we flip on the news. We hear mm -hmm. about that. It's like, oh, okay. That happened. Mm -hmm. Seems like a big deal. It's over there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to worry about what's on my grocery list mm -hmm. again. Why are you someone that decided, no, I'm going to stay focused on those huge things and make that my life's work? Why do you think that happened? Um, that's such a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is that there's a lot of um, almost like um, sort of philosophy that goes into nuclear war planning, nuclear strategy, thinking about non-proliferation policy, thinking about what incentivizes different actors. You have to be very empathetic to do this work because you have to be able to kind of put yourself into someone else's shoes and think, mm -hmm. you know, what is what are their perceived threats? Um, what makes them stay up at night? What makes them worried? And those are the kinds of things that appeal to me in any line of work. And I think this was just kind of a coincidence of, you know, feeling like I have some expertise in this, in an area that's relevant to this, but also wanting to wake up every day and feel like I'm doing something meaningful, to not ever wonder whether the work that I'm doing has an impact. Yeah. Um, and so all of those things kind of came together and, and pushed me in this direction. But I honestly, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do any of this if I hadn't gone to a program that is specifically designed to get people into the nonproliferation space and uh -huh. kind of help them develop those skills. So it was thinking this might be something I wanted to do and then having somebody teach me how to do it. Gotcha. You said a couple times that you had a background in Russian mm -hmm. or Russia. Mm -hmm. I can't remember how you phrased that exactly. How did that come about? 
Well, um, when because <laughs> that seems like a sort of a pivotal first step. Yeah, it was for sure. So I um, graduated high school early, and I did a gap Why year. Am I not surprised. <laughs> 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 yeah, so subtle. <clears throat> graduated early, um, and. Yeah. The first half of my year, I spent very usefully working at a Hollister in the mall in my hometown. <laughs> As one it. does. I love it. Saving my money, five fifty an hour. That was the minimum wage Whoa. then. Oh, yeah, thanks. I know, back in the day. Wow. And um, But then the second half of the year, I lived with some of our family friends in London. And there are a lot of Russians who live in London. So I met some Russians. I became friends with a group of them. And when I went to college, you know, I was a person who was good at foreign language. And I thought, you know, Wellesley has a really famous Russian department. It was founded by Vladimir Nabokov, who's the person who wrote Lolita. Um, And I thought, I'll just try this. I mean, why not? I don't know anything about this language and I'll give it a whirl. And then I totally fell in love with it and um, also, because it was a liberal arts college, I graduated with almost no other usable skills aside from oh, my knowledge of Russian. So, uh, it's yeah. important to note, I would say, I don't, I, don't requ- I don't require the mic, but I, I wouldn't mind the mic. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sarah has a particularly um, special knack for language, both acquisition and mimicry. Mm. Um, if she finishes that beer that she's drinking, we could per- possibly we could persuade her to do some mm. impersonations, but that's just a, a pipe dream of mine personally as I sit here watching. But we'll see, we'll see. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, she's she knows several languages. Maybe perhaps we could, you know, probe deeper into that uh, later. But Russian was not the first language she learned. It was one of the few languages she speaks, which I've always found quite um, fascinating, but especially as someone who's tried to learn one or two languages and, you know, deeply entrenched in my English-speaking ways. But um, <clears throat> I just wanted to say, and maybe she's tiptoeing around it, I believe her first passion and interest and goal was to speak French uh, and perhaps pursue an education in French, but was turned on to Russian and then kind of pivoted midway through yeah. that pursuit. But um, the first time we went to France, I... We got in a taxi cab after we got, <laughs> got. We were leaving the airport to go into into Paris proper from Charles de Gaulle, uh, and she was like, "Oh God, like uh, I barely can speak anything." And, like she had like a forty five minute conversation and just strictly in French with the taxi driver the whole way. And I was like, "Well," and we showed up where we were supposed to. So I don't know what they said. I still don't know what they said. But um, anyway, it's um, it's not just a casual like pursuit that led to being able to speak Russian. Kind of that's a Got it. That's a tricky one, and uh, <laughs> but, I just wanted to mention that as an outside observer, Sarah's language skills are like otherworldly, and um, but even more so, her ability to capture the nuance of even just you speaking your own language, like <laughs> this, a shared language, it'll be interesting to see. We'll see. Thank you, honey. Awesome. <laughs> no, that that's great context. Um, I'm glad you're here. Seriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, modesty is great, but sometimes it gets in the way of a podcast. So I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad that uh, I got my hype man, Brad, here. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Okay. So getting back to uh, the main task at hand here. One thing I'm curious about is there's such a rivalry 
between the United States and Russia mm-hmm. that just seems fueled constantly by popular culture. Whether it's, you know, every mo- every month it seems like there's a new Russia versus the U.S. spy movie coming mm-hmm. out. Um, look at that Russian has a bazillion followers on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, Myself included. Yeah. Okay, that was going to be one of my questions. That was going to be one of my questions. Uh-huh. Um, and to this day, I think if you were to just panel folks on the street, regardless of where it is in the U.S., Russia just feels like this black box to the average American to mm-hmm. an extent. And I'm curious uh, if you have some ideas about why that's the case. <clears throat> I remember this, not this most recent New Year's, but the one before I was in... Denver, I just went to this completely random New Year's party and I met this guy there was just uh, having conversation and he was half Russian mm-hmm. and we we started talking about that a little bit and I could see and hear the shame mm. of the fact that he was half Russian and mm-hmm. he was he was sort of hedging constantly um, and it, it just seemed, seemed like he, he was ashamed of being Russian in that sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very U.S. dominated environment of that house, par- house party. And so I'm curious, you talked about earlier about putting yourself in other shoes um, and being good at that. Why do you think that rivalry is still so prevalent? Well, that's a great question. And I mean, for me, because the focus of my work is on, you know, nuclear issues, I think it does have a lot to do with the fact that we're the two largest nuclear weapon states. You know, in a lot of ways, we're living in a multipolar world today, but you still have this bipolarity between Russia and the United States by virtue of the fact that they have the two largest arsenals by orders of magnitude. I mean, it's just really, really significant. Um, 90%. Yeah. Wow. You studied up, my friend. That's pretty impressive. But I will also say it's down 86% from its Cold War height. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So there's 15,000 warheads? Yeah. Damn. Woo. Did you know that, Brad? (laughs) It's pretty impressive. That was my goal. It's really, really, really impressive. Yeah. Guess what it took? Yeah. 30 seconds of Googling. Wow, 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 wow. That's major. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why I think that's there. I think there's honestly a a military. It's down 86%. Yeah. Since the Cold War. Since the height of the Cold War. Yeah. There there are 86% fewer nuclear weapons yeah just in, the, in the u.s and russian arsenal combined okay yeah. got it yep. yeah or soviet is the split fairly even it is, is it now because uh-huh, of the new start treaty which is set to expire mm-hmm. on february 5th of 2021 mm-hmm. which if it does will be the only i mean that's the only remaining arms control treaty that's left bilaterally between russia and the Boy. united states and so <laughs> you can imagine that's got people very anxious um in my field. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of kind of, um, you know, why there's still this bigger rivalry that even people who do not work in our space feel and can see, just as you pointed out. Um, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of Americans have not been to Russia and a lot of Russians have not been to the United States. I mean, more Russians come here than go there. But I'm that's part of it is just not kind of having any interaction with Russians at all. Um, It's hard to kind of, you know, regard the other person as an honest broker or build trust or build rapport or anything like that if you don't have any face-to-face 
engagement and all you kind of encounter them through is, you know, meme culture almost or yep. the memification of Russians. One of my all-time, sorry to interrupt, but no, one of my all-time favorite quotes is, prejudice rarely survives experience. Yeah, that's exactly, it's exactly what it is. I mean, I lived there for a year my junior year of college and I'm, that, I you can't go back to kind of relying on stereotypes once that's happened. And of course, like every stereotype, there's, you know, a kernel of truth. But once you've really had some experiences, that's kind of hard to hang on to those. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think everybody watches American TV shows. Everybody watches American movies. Everybody reads American books. I don't know of any Americans aside from people who I interact with who watch Russian TV shows, watch Russian movies and read you know Russian books. So I think there's also a kind of lack of soft power promotion mm. there that makes it hard for people who live over here to get to know Russians. Yeah. So that's more on a civilian level, mm. but on a on a political level, why are we at odds? Why? Why? Yeah. Why does that rivalry still exist? Is um, it purely because we have so many warheads? No, I think it's I mean, I think that's sort of a manifestation of the rivalry yeah. as much as anything. But I think it's um you know, um, it has to do with very different perceptions of the world. So in a lot of countries, there's a sense that the United States is kind of trying to go around and be the global policeman. And that's something that many, many countries and many governments are really uncomfortable with. And I think Russia is very much in that category. Um, but it is worth noting that, you know, in the immediate kind of collapse of the Soviet Union, so that period in the 1990s to the early 2000s, um, the U.S.-Russia relationship really improved very significantly. And part of the complaint that you often hear from Russians is that as that was happening, you know, Russia was in a kind of weakened state and the United States has not been very receptive to Russia rising. And uh -huh. so that that has kind of allowed for there to be this resurgence of you know, arms racing of kind of a new Cold War with some different characteristics and different complications that the original Cold War didn't have. So I think, um, you know, there have been real ups and downs and real fluctuations in that relationship. It's always been, I guess, verging on or totally adversarial, but there have been moments when it's been a lot warmer and this is not one of them. Yeah, I love that point, though, um, about kind of casting memory back to where we were in the 60s mm -hmm. and then sort of viewing where we are now through that lens because I think it is really important sometimes you know regardless of the situation it seems like we get bogged down and right now is not very good but mm -hmm. then when you compare it to 40 years ago it's like oh actually it's a hell of a lot better than yeah. it was 40 years ago um how much do you think uh Vladimir Putin plays into this is hard to Hard to phrase, but okay. As an example, last month mm -hmm. was it that he removed um, Prime Minister Medvedev basically from power for all intents and purposes? Like he resigned, mm -hmm. but who knows? Mm -hmm. um, it sort of seems like he's dismantling the government and restructuring to an extent in a way that benefits him. Is that fair to say? Um, I think what he's doing, I mean, my read on it, and of course, we don't know um, exactly. But my read is that he is thinking ahead to when he is no longer the head of state. And he's positioning himself to be in a role that he likes. So he he is structuring it so that he can have some jurisdiction over 
um, international security and foreign policy issues, which are the things that he finds interesting. Um, so he's kind of laying the groundwork for what he's going to be able to do and what kind of authority he's going to have okay. um, once he leaves. So you don't think it's as dire as trying to get back to a, a Lenin-Stalin sort of level of... Uh I run this place. No, I, I mean, I don't think so, because he's laying the groundwork for how what it's going to be like when he is no longer the head of state. So gotcha. the assumption is that somebody else will emerge as the head of state, but we don't know who. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. And yeah. is he getting people out of the way so that he can be, so that he can occupy their roles? Or what would be the reason that he would have removed example um i don't think it's as much as that i mean again it's hard to say because um there there haven't been sort of you know just like any government russia is not going to say and here is the sort of underlying secret reason why why i'm doing this but i mean just looking at it from the outside to me it looks more like yeah maybe there is some power consolidation but it's it's with an eye to I'm going to step down, which is not or, or, you know, there will come a moment where I am not the president anymore because he he, you know, there are term limits yep. under the Russian Constitution, he, which are he didn't change those. He, he's been around a long time. He has been so around a long what time. are the term limits? Um, they are. Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. But I think um, I think they're every four years, just like in the United States. But he did make an adjustment at one point that allowed him to return yeah. After Medvedev was oh okay the um, the president because there was that period of time when Obama was president when Medvedev was the Russian president and so then that was in like 2008 and then Putin was able to come back uh-huh. as the head of state. So again. he just had a sabbatical. He had a sabbatical. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, so we sort of quickly got into the weeds here, but let's kind of go back and I would love for you to describe what you do on a day-to-day basis. Mm, okay. Um, so I work at a think tank, which is, you know, a non-governmental organization. I do not have a security clearance. I work with all declassified or unclassified sources. Um, and basically what you do at a think tank is you go out and you get grants to do the kinds of projects that you are interested in and that you feel like are relevant to, um, you know, the the issues that you're focused on. So we focus on non-proliferation and arms control issues. Um, And yeah, so my, you know, I kind of focus primarily on the Eurasia space, you know, broadly. Um, A lot of my work is specifically about U.S.-Russia relations and U.S.-Russia arms control. Um, But when I come to work, you know, I do a lot of the same stuff that everybody does when they come to work. I do my emails. I um, answer phone calls, um, but then I'll sit down and do a research project for you know five hours in the afternoon or something like that, and it's very much like the kind of thing you might have done in school, where you're working on a big long-term project and um, doing. I do a lot of archival research, so that's a big part of what I do, um, and I also teach. Okay, uh, so yeah. are you a professor? Yes, this, oh. this semester I am. So I'm an adjunct. I, uh-huh. I don't have a PhD, so I'm not on the faculty, but I am teaching this semester. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how, I mean, you're not a journalist, obviously. Right. Um, I have to assume you interact with government officials pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. How do you think they interact with you and and your colleagues differently than if you were a journalist? Like, what is that interaction like? Since, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not a, you're not a government employee. You're not a journalist. 
You're sort of in your own realm to an extent. Yeah. So, um, I mean, first of all, we're nonpartisan. So I don't work for a partisan think tank. I you know, have my own views. But the mission of the think tank itself is not partisan. So I think that, um, you know, changes the dynamic to some extent because there is an assumption that we are not pursuing a particular angle. We're just thinking more broadly about the international space and thinking about what would be what recommendations can we generate that um, would improve outcomes in nonproliferation or in arms control? And that's the other thing I think that sets us apart from, you know, either the academic, the purely academic community or the journalist community, because a lot of them do great investigative work as well. But m- our mandate is really to generate recommendations that we want to feed into the policymaking space. So when I speak with policymakers, my goal is usually to try to present my views for, you know, as somebody who's not in the weeds, not entrenched in the bureaucracy, here is what what I see from my perspective based on talking with a lot of different groups or looking at different sources for what government should be doing. Yeah. So what sort of venue do you present that in? Um, Sometimes it's the UN. Really? Mm -hmm. So that's I was in Geneva two two weeks ago at the UN. And how do you, um, why is your organization taken seriously? Is it, like, why why are y'all validated? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, how, how, do you, how do you gain um, that clout? Yeah, credibility. <laughs> I credibility, mean, that, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a good question. I mean, some of it is, so first of all, we've been around for- Why does your for, opinion matter, basically? Right, yeah. right. We've been around for 30 years, so, yeah. and we're the biggest- um, you know, NGO in the world that's focused exclusively on nonproliferation. So part of it is just that we've been around in the field for a long time. And a lot of the people who we have on staff have been, you know, working in this space for years and years and years. Um, but some of it, I mean, I think is that, you know, we do good analysis. So we, I mean, not to kind of toot our own horns, but I think there's a real rigor there to the analysis. Um, and that's something that is really important and gets you, you know, credibility and, and people do listen when it seems like there's a sound kind of measured approach to looking at different perspectives. Um, and um, yeah, particularly in the diplomatic space, like almost everybody, all of our students, I did this, you know, we intern at the UN or we spend time there. So we really build relationships with the folks who are there, but then we also just have a sense for how those bodies work in a way that you don't necessarily if you're not kind of in the mix. Um, and so I think that is a big help also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do victories look like for y'all? Oh. What is, what is, what is progress? What's a successful yeah, day? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, for me, sometimes it is being on the news because i know that my yeah (laughs) everybody listening you've probably seen you've probably seen sarah on the news um yeah so i i mean that's a way of you know i i am um not because it's a personal victory but because you feel like what you're saying is it's reaching a bigger audience and i mean it's more than i could ever do in my own individual capacity with kind of the platforms that i have so you know no, having a bigger stage and having that view reach more people, I consider to be a, a victory. But I mean, I also do a lot of work um, 
with students and to recruit students into our field and get particularly we have a you know a significant gender imbalance in our field so I do a lot of work to get women younger women interested in working in this space and when I have somebody say to me oh I you know I never thought that I could have a job in this field because I never see anybody who looks like me working in the field and it meant a lot to me that you you know showed me that this was possible I mean that's like the the most tangible biggest possible win that I can think of. So those are the moments that really make me feel like wow, I'm not just shouting into the void about, you know, my perspectives. I'm like having a real influence on on the people who are going to inherit all these problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So <clears throat> what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Mm, um so there are a lot of different initiatives kind of going on in our field right now because I think there has been um pretty significant recognition um, that if you're working on really complex problems and you don't have a diversity of perspectives contributing to the solutions, you actually are worse at your job. Like you generate worse outcomes. So you're telling me having older (laughs) white men run our country is not the best way? Would you believe it, Mason? (laughs) Yes. Um, What? Yeah, I know. Crazy, crazy, (laughs) crazy revelatory stuff. yeah, so I mean, p- part of it's it's always hard to kind of make that argument um, to in a way that resonates with um, you know people who have been doing the same thing for a long time the same way. <laughs> but one of the things that I think really made a significant impact is there's been some um, really good um, reporting out of the private sector about the ways that like how having diversity affects bottom lines. And when you start talking about money, I don't care what business you're in, that really gets people's attention. So that was um, that kind of reporting and that data was something that made a big impact on our field. So um, I think there are a lot of different challenging moments in what people talk about as the career pipeline. You know, some of it is when you get to the mid-career and if if you're a woman and you want to have a kid – um, it can be really hard to keep doing the travel, to keep doing the, you know, putting yourself out there to make early morning meetings, to do all that kind of stuff, just because the way that child rearing happens still in the United States is is gender inequitable. It's, you yeah. know, the mom is still doing a lot of the work. Yeah. Um, but then another one of the moments is at the beginning of the pipeline. So I did a big research project um, last year where I looked at the way that undergraduates learn about nuclear issues at top colleges and universities in the states. And I found through surveying different professors that there's actually a gender imbalance in the classroom. So in classrooms where they teach about these issues, where students would have the chance to encounter them, to learn about them for the first time, there tend to be more male students than female students. So even at the very kind of entry point of the pipeline. The seed level. Right. There's there's an inequity issue. And so what I do is I have a a program that I run that's kind of, um, you know, in addition to my work on U.S.-Russia stuff, where I go around to different colleges and universities, and I just, I just give talks. And I think it's important to have, you know, a a woman um, talking about WMD issues. So people get used to seeing somebody who's not an older white man talk about authoritatively about this stuff. But I also run a mentorship program. So the girls who I meet going around to these different schools, I then am able to match up with mentors. They work together for a year. They identify concrete goals. I mean, we do all of the stuff that many other industries are doing to try to get more women kind of interested in the field and help nurture their 
they're learning so that it can turn into a career. Um, and so that's a, you know, a huge focus of the work that I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why not go in a more governmental direction? Like personally, mm. why did you choose the route that you have so far? And, and maybe do you have aspirations down the line? To be in government? Um, yeah. Sarah yeah. <laughs> a little late. Yeah, late, it's a little late for that. Yeah, I'd have to really. I don't know. They did a pretty good job of uh, confusing us last <laughs> yeah. week in the yes, caucuses. Yes, I could so announce my could, run. Yeah, jump in there with Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> could be good timing. <clears throat> Let them all take each other down and just. Yeah, just kidding. I like. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I, I really like the flexibility of think tank work. So. Um, you are in a lot of ways in control of your own destiny. If you have an idea for a project and it's good and you can get funding for it, you can go do it. And my perception of government work is that that's not at all the case. There are, you know, bureaucratic drivers kind of shaping the direction that you go. You have a very strict budget. You, you know, X, Y, and Z thing um, prevents you from from necessarily being able to do that. So that's one of the things that, that you know, I like um, about the work that I do. But I do sometimes wonder whether I would be able to have a more direct impact in government um, only because then you're at this kind of seat of policymaking. Um, but never having done that, you know, I don't have a good sense for whether it actually feels like you're empowered to do that when you're in government or whether you feel similarly like you're removed from the the way that policy is being made or the, the policymaking seat. Um, but I mean, the other thing is if you work in government, you cannot live in Monterey, California. So. <laughs> Pacific Grove <laughs> yeah, slash yeah, so Pleasant yes, Grove. Pleasant Grove, California, yeah. Pleasant Grove. Yeah. Uh. So that's one of the other kind of main reasons why, um, why we like it. And that's been, you know, we moved out here together maybe, and had to kind of figure it out together. To hear how you pivoted from being a student to a professional in the field without having to leave Monterey, California. Oh, yeah. That's a mm. great point. Um, Not the common trajectory. Uh-huh. That's true. I yeah. mean, I got very lucky. So I have these two really wonderful mentors um, who work at the Institute. and Bill Potter and Anna Vasilieva. Oh, and, um, you could start a podcast, Brad. No, I, no, I just thought that was important. This is good. Yeah. It is He's important. Good. He knows no. the questions. Journalism major. I don't know if you knew. Oh, wow. Yeah, this isn't his first rodeo. He knows okay. a, a thing or two about an interview. It actually, it's my first rodeo. But, <laughs> 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 like a rodeo in this format. Oh. Yeah. Okay, that's particularly um, yeah, so the, I mean, um, a lot of students who graduate from our program do end up going into government or they go, you know, we have a ton of international students, so sometimes they'll even go home to their own national governments and work for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or their Defense Department or whatever it is. Um, but I had been, you know, working on a couple of projects that actually culminated in a, a book that um, my boss and I put out two years ago now, I guess. Um, but I'd started working on those projects as a student. And so as part of kind of that work, I was able to then you know, say, hey, I would really love to be able to stay in Monterey and to continue to work here. And he was able to make that happen. So mm -hmm. some of it was, you know, just not everybody wants to stay here, but I really did. And, you know, Brad was working here already. And um, we, you know, I had had a great experience as a student working where I work now and wanted to keep doing it. So. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So Whoa. Do you see the moon? Isn't I, that crazy? I interrupt. It's happening now. It's Dude. really a good moon. For the next couple of hours, it's like the best show in town right now. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. You should have seen it. Two nights ago, it was a super moon. It was even like... 
Dude. A little bit brighter. Than we can look out our telescope. Yeah, your telescope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's pretty good so stuff. It's a shot for moon viewing. In this it is. Moment. It is. We don't skimp on moons here, Once Payson. it up a little bit, it really lights up the water, too. Mm-hmm. You'll see. It's nice. So, okay. So, speaking of, I'm going to make maybe a little bit of... Man, it's rising fast. I know. It's crazy. I'm going to make a little bit of a stretch of a segue here, man. Okay. So, right here, we're looking at this incredible, glorious, natural scene. We're in one of the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, I would say. It's, I think so. It's yeah. easy to argue that it is, yes. Yeah. And and hard to argue that it isn't. More important. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, geez, that thing is ripping up know, the horizon. What in the world? It doesn't even make right. sense. Moon. We got a moon it was peeking up, over right. like 30 seconds mm-hmm. ago, and now it's like... Now it's, I can get my sunglasses on. This is too much. Okay, so point being, we're in this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene. Mm. And out there in the world are these weapons that can just wipe it off Mm -hmm. instantly. Mm -hmm. Cool segue. Um, Why are there so many from a practical standpoint? Like, I'm I'm thinking about this arms race. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so if there's if there's fifteen thousand, it's actually war- fifteen hundred and fifty that are the oh, fifteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warheads. Yeah. Oh, really? That are, that's that's the cap in the New Start Treaty. That's it what it's capped at. So why why do I have the number fifteen thousand in my head? Did Maybe I? because it sounds like fifteen hundred. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. I heard so I heard this you were doing that Skype presentation. Yeah. And I heard it in that. You did. Okay. But well maybe then, maybe it was that could have been wrong. But let me um yeah. Okay. So point being, mm-hmm. it's still a ginormous number. Yeah, it's huge. Um if ninety percent of the O's it's like thirteen fifty. I think that's one. Not a math we gal. Call Howard. Yeah, Howie. we need Howie. Phone a friend. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, well over a thousand warheads between the U.S. and Russia, yeah, theoretically yeah. pointed at each other. Mm-hmm. I know that's sort of mm-hmm. some location, but um, why are there that many? Why? Why is it that? Because I have to assume like five, mm-hmm. one. I don't yes. know what the number is. A few mm-hmm. would quote unquote do the trick. Yeah. Why do we have that many? <laughs> Um, yeah, that is a great question. And that's like one of those kind of fundamental questions that is really hard to answer. And I think that different actors have different perspectives. But like, if I were a US military strategist, I would say, this is what we need to maintain a quote, credible deterrent. So it's not so much about what would destroy our adversary. It's more about how many weapons do we need to have so that they do not attack us in the first place. And the US strategists have determined that this is an acceptable number for us to maintain that deterrent. That's such a weird, like, I get it, but it's also mm-hmm. weird because it's like, okay, the hypothetical world, three three get shot off. There's no one left to shoot the other 1,000. Well, that's a crazy <laughs> thing, though. I mean, that is, that is absolutely true, but, um, you know. Or is there? <laughs> yeah. Well, right. And so, I mean, a lot of um, the sort of, you know, I guess, major topic of conversation that has people up in arms today is this idea of quote unquote low yield nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons that don't um they only kinda hurt. Yeah, but which of course is <laughs> complete horseshit because yeah. that is not a thing that you know, it, that's that is like <clears throat> antithetical to, you know, 
everything that we know about the destructive capability of nuclear weapons. But um, there's this idea that you could somehow use them in like a theater or a tactical setting rather than uh-huh. a strategic setting. Uh-huh. And that is kind of so there are you're supposed to have, you know, different nuclear weapons for different circumstances and to respond to different situations. And they all serve a different purpose, allegedly. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of the the issue. But I mean, the other thing is that, you know, the U.S. is part of NATO and we extend our nuclear deterrent to cover other NATO countries. So we've said to them, like, you don't need to develop your own indigenous nuclear capability because we will come to your defense if someone attacks you. And so part of it is also what do our allies consider to be a credible deterrent so that they feel secure Mm. knowing, you know, I don't need to go out and develop my own indigenous capability like if, you know, because I know that the United States will be will have my back. I would love to have that scenario where none of my friends own nice cars. Mm -hmm. I get to have 10 badass cars Mm -hmm. And then when they need a car, they can come borrow one of my bags. Yeah, they can, but you have to drive them around. I would also love that. But Payson, you have to drive them around. They can't. But I have to drive all of them. Yeah, Yeah. you have to drive them. That's a great setup for me. Mm -hmm. As long as I don't have to own an insurance or repair them, Mm -hmm. I'd love to drive your cars, Mm (laughs) Payson. Okay. Yeah, you've nailed it. That's that's basically it. Let okay. Let's break this down just a little bit Mm. more in terms of the nuts and bolts of uh, these weapons. Um. Well, okay, countries first. There, yes. My understanding is there are nine countries, theoretically, that have nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Five are officially recognized? Yes. Oh, Mason, right? oh my God, you've done your homework. <laughs> nice yes, job. you're so good. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. <laughs> um, should I really show off and say which, which they yeah, are? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Go, lay it on us. Sure. Lay it on I'm, us. I'm, I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll okay. see. We'll see. Okay. I think I have right. no notes here. Okay. U.S., Russia, obviously. Mm-hmm. France. Mm-hmm. The U.K., mm-hmm. China. Nailed it. Okay. Yep. And then the other four that are not officially recognized, this is going to be harder, uh, North Korea. Mm-hmm. Who are the other three? India, Pakistan, and Israel. Okay. Israel makes sense. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gotten the other two. Pakistan, really? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Tested oh. in 98. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. And who yep. had them but doesn't anymore? <clears throat> Oh, yeah, this France? is a good South question. Africa. South, South Africa. Africa. Not France. France has them. They still have them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It, yeah so, okay, yeah, so South, South Africa. Africa. South Africa is a really interesting scenario mm-hmm. because it almost gives, like, I don't know if it's ornamental hope, but it's a country that had nuclear weapons and then somehow was willing to completely relinquish yep. that. And also, how much of this is status? Oh, a ton. So, I mean, there are a lot of different theories about, like, why it is that countries want a nuclear weapon and why they proliferate. And one of the big ones is prestige. Like, just this is a sign that you're developed. This is a sign that you can stand on your own two feet. Um, Would you put Iran in that category? Or is there more of a theoretically, like, practical? Well, I mean, (laughs) they haven't developed one. So Right. But their interest. Uh, their interest. Um, you know, I think it has to do with perceived threats, but I think it also has to do, I'm sure, with, you know, prestige to a certain extent and sovereignty, wanting to be a sovereign country with your own defenses and be I able perceive, to defend yourself. I perceive Iran and North Korea to be similar in their pursuit of a nuclear weapon at this point in time. How do you feel about that? It's it's, it's to appear to be the superior or a superior nation. 
when in fact they may not be quite able to deliver on their threats or their prom their promises um, i don't know i think i mean with north korea it's interesting i think um and i should just caveat this by saying that you know i, I i'm not a north korean specialist so or, or an Iran specialist. Um, She's not an expert on the subject. I call bullshit. Well, that's uh, what she was saying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll see who listens to this. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think. I mean, my perception as far as North Korea goes. So North Korea has a, a you know philosophy called Juche that is this idea of self determination and self reliance. And so the nuclear weapons program is very much rooted in that kind of tradition. It's like, we are able to do this ourselves. We can do this. We do not, you know, we can be self-reliant and self-sustaining. We don't need to depend on anybody else for our protection. They're a nation of preppers. They're a nation of preppers. And they for sure <laughs> think that the United States is going to attack them. I mean, that is, they 100% think that. And they're afraid that the United States is pursuing regime change. And so that is... Like, you have to put yourself in that mindset, and that's the kind of mentality that's like, we will sacrifice everything. We will, like, our people will starve. We don't care as long as we can develop this capability. Um, Did and they, they get there simply because of their leadership, or is there some sort of, like, what's the historical context there um, that made it this uh, us against the world? Because they're such an island. Well, who are their allies? Oh, they don't. I mean, they don't really have okay. any. They have people who are kind of okay with them. I mean, historically, like they're communists, so the Soviet Union was, you know, somebody with whom they were sort of allied. Um, but so how did they today? Get there? They're they you know they call them the hermit nation. They're right. Like totally how did they get around. to that point? Um, <laughs> Just quick, I know that's by a... doing things that are you know provocative, and I mean they've they've pulled out of a lot of multilateral treaties. So like they used to be a member of this big treaty called the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is kind of the thing that governs who is allowed to have nuclear weapons and who's not. And they withdrew from it. They're the only country to have done that. Um, and they've isolated themselves in a lot of ways. So I think it's, you know, both um, you have to be really afraid that your flexibility and your own ability to determine your destiny is being limited by international regimes to want to pull out of things like that. But then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because people are afraid that you're not predictable and they're afraid that you cheat and they're afraid that you can't be trusted. And then you kind of dig yourself into a, a, a hole where yeah. you're really scared. Yeah, interesting. What's your take on Dennis Rodman? <laughs> in the context of North Korea, I'm assuming. Not sorry? just not just writ large, Dennis Rodman, but like in the context of North Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry, 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 <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I love just letting grass. Um, yeah. As a as a fan of basketball, I'm very curious of your take on uh, his. Yeah, like right on. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, did you follow much of that? Not really. Okay. I mean, I, I know obviously sort of what he that he was interested in being like a citizen diplomat to North Korea, but he thought he was like the leading yeah. peacemaker. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> obviously he's not empowered to like do side. any kind of treaty. Like he's not an official part of any government <laughs> of any that I am aware of, except perhaps Potcoin, which I do believe he is a heavy promoter of based on T-shirts that he wears. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't even know what to say about that. But uh, I mean, as ter as far as like my field goes, he he can't do you know anything. Um, yeah. for, <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and I'll try not to make this too much longer. But um, let's wind all the way back to World War II. Mm. 
um, the Manhattan Project. Uh, this was uh, 45. Mm-hmm. Um, for all intents and purposes, the creation of nuclear weapons ended the worst war in human history. Is that fair to say? Um, Is that a stretch? I don't know if, well, it definitely coincided, it brought about the end of it, but I think there's new research that suggests that Japan was preparing to surrender anyway. Okay. So there's some, I, I have to say, I don't know that history super well, but um, in terms of kind of Japanese military strategy, but it definitely, the war ended after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have to assume this technology would have come about. Say Manhattan Project never mm. happened. Technology would have come along anyway, I have to assume. Oh, definitely. It was like emergent in the in like 38. Like people were starting to talk about splitting the atom and yeah. what that would mean. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, your, your title has the word um, anti-proliferation. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of denotes the lack of spreading. Mm-hmm. But also, my understanding is that there's this very concerted effort to kind of pare down. Mm-hmm. What is the dream scenario here? Like, what? How? How far back to 1944 mm-hmm. do you think we can get? What's realistic? Mm. It is so hard to say um, because, I mean, I am a person who would like to see a world free of nuclear weapons. I mean, that is the goal of all of these UN treaties of, you know, everybody who's kind of working in this field in an earnest way. Um, But I also think of myself as somebody who's pretty realistic. And I don't believe that you could just wake up tomorrow morning and say the United States is going to dismantle its nuclear arsenal and everybody else, please join in and do it. So I think it's going to take a really long time I think um, you have to think about the kind of world that you would want to see post-abolishment of nuclear weapons. What controls would you have in place to make sure countries aren't going to restart their programs? I mean, people don't just forget how to do this work. And so you have to figure out how to make sure that everybody feels like they can verifiably be confident that their neighbor isn't developing, you know, a nuclear um, capability. But, um, you know, it's not necess- we're not going to return to 1944 um, or early 1945. Um, there are so many kind of high-precision conventional weapons and cyber warfare and, you know, space warfare and all kinds of things like that that are really complicating this entanglement between the nuclear and the conventional. And I think um, that means that whatever the world looks like after you're able to get rid of nuclear weapons, there's still going to be a lot of really tough issues to contend with. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean the end of of total war. Yeah. So that's cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) No, but... We have, just to be clear, conventional, quote-unquote, conventional weapons with a yield that would more or less be the not quite as much as... No. No, no orders orders of magnitude less. Less than less than even a low yield nuke. A low yield nuke. Okay, so let's talk about that. Yeah. What what yeah. okay, let's let give us the range here. Strategic nukes. What, 
let's talk about those two. Oh, you want to talk about strategic yeah. cubes? Okay, tell okay. Us, tell us what we're looking at. Okay. Can, can I get another beer? Yeah, please. Yeah. Please <laughs> get another beer. Coming right up. Okay. <laughs> Brad will get it. Um, Is there any pizza left? My specialty, yeah, bring you that too. Yeah, yeah, pizza pizza. Pizza. <laughs> yeah I think, um, no, there is still really, like, there was a lot of conversation about, um, what was it, the mother of all bombs mm. in, like, 2017, probably, and conversation about, you know, exactly what, like, what does a really high-yield, quote-unquote, high-yield conventional weapon look like? And um, my dad is a former philosopher who then became a banker and is now retired and is, like, back to being a philosopher. And, um, <laughs> as, as, as one does, yes. As happens. Yes, and um, I remember he kind of made, he just got curious about exactly this question and made a spreadsheet where he was, like, lining up the yield of the mother of all bombs, which is a conventional bomb with, like... Um, Hiro the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then um, Sarabamba, which was like the big, huge, you know, Soviet bomb that was like the largest bomb ever tested, nuclear bomb ever tested. Um, and it was it was just staggering what the difference was. Like uh, even a very, very, very high yield conventional weapon just cannot come close to even a like fifteen, you know, kiloton TNT small quote-unquote small nuclear weapon okay yeah <clears throat> and there's uh so there were atomic bombs and then there were hydrogen bombs uh -huh. is pretty much everything hydrogen bombs these days or mm, yeah or what's called like a boosted weapon where you inject gases like tritium into a bomb and then that creates a higher yield because it sort of speeds up the uh -huh. rate at which the yeah. everything is colliding inside there so I assume even you don't know all of the types of weapons that each of us have, each of um, these countries have. No, I don't. Definitely not off of the top of my head. And there's plenty of stuff that I just don't know about. Right. Yeah. Um, but can you somehow describe to the lay listener what sort of damage one of these would do these days? Oh, it would do a lot. I mean, Just put it to give us some scale. There's a really, really fantastic... Um, uh, website called Nuke Map, where you can actually pick out a city and imagine what it would be like, and pick your yield and imagine what it would be like if a nuclear bomb was dropped on that location and from what height and whatever. And I mean, even if you were in, you know, I don't know, Washington, D.C., you would still get like radiation in New York City and stuff like that. Or, you know, if you dropped a nuclear bomb the size of the ones that were used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on Manhattan, it would obviously completely destroy everything it's just like it is devastating and you know as i assume most people probably know you know it's not just the explosive power of and a you know a fission reaction but you also have all of the fission products and the radiation poisoning that comes with that and there are people talk about like the stochastic effects of ionizing radiation so the kinds of cancers that you can get as a result of being irradiated and those are things that you don't see or don't even necessarily know have affected you until a long time later because you don't have like acute radiation poisoning so it's just devastating yeah. environmental consequence i mean there's just tons of tons of stuff and because we have thankfully fairly limited experience with nuclear weapons and war fighting um, I don't think we even are necessarily aware of exactly what would happen and what this uh -huh. would look like, but we know it would be really bad. Yeah. Yeah, I watched the HBO series Chernobyl oh, recently. Yes. 
So good. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, I mean, that thing, like, the, it was a nuclear reactor. It wasn't even supposed to cause damage. Mm-hmm. And still, that place is locked, locked the down. fuck oh, down. Oh, exactly. 20, 30. Like, it is a 30 years. black hole yeah. cesspool years. of yes. just damage mm-hmm. there. Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely. Uh, how does that compare to what a nuclear explosion, a deliberate nuclear yeah. uh, spill, if you will? Oh, yeah. How, like... Obviously, it was not intended to be a nuclear bomb. Is it worse? Is it less bad than a nuclear bomb going off a conventional, modern nuclear bomb? How would it, how would it compare? Um, I mean, it, it's what opened, people say, it's what opened Gorbachev's eyes to the need mm. to do arms control. And I think mm. that was actually in the, in the Chernobyl series. That was sort of like, holy shit, we really need to be thinking about this. And this is not the kind of thing that you can just hope for the best and um, kind of let arms control lapse and and hope that nothing happens. Because, I mean, that's the other thing that I think Chernobyl did such a good job of depicting is, like, you can imagine that your weapons are safe. You can imagine that your facilities are safe. You can imagine, you know, X, Y, and Z thing. And um, you can do everything that you're supposed to do in order to keep your arsenal safe and secure. But there are so many, you know, close calls and accidents and things that we don't even hear about that we're starting to learn about in the public record um, that really, I think, fly in the face of that narrative. And so mm-hmm. if you are if you're the kind of person who believes that there can't be an accident with a nuclear weapon because doctrine tells you when to use them and you have certain protocols in place that make sure there's not going to be an accident you're wrong i mean that's not correct that's not backed up by history and so with that in mind it's like obviously the only solution is to get rid of all of the nuclear weapons and you just have to think about what would motivate governments to do that right 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 um you want to say something honey come on i have a second a follow-up question expert brad wants to weigh in well I just feel like there's some things that are interesting to bring to light mm. when discussing the potential threat, not just by other countries' adversaries, if you will, having possessing nuclear weapons and the capability of using them, but our own country having them. I know that you've told me about many instances where we've almost either crashed a plane carrying a nuclear bomb or yes. had a guy drop a bolt down a, uh, literally down a rocket uh Silo. Silo. A missile yeah, silo. Say, a launching, that happened. launching tube was the word I was going for. That was not it. That Was but, that in North Carolina? Well, there was there in was Goldsboro. A, pl- a plane in North a, Carolina? A plane in Goldsboro. The yeah. bay came open and the, the bomb just fell out fell on the out ground. the ground. It did not explode. Yeah. But there's a some but, some kid who was truly, I mean, I think he was like maybe 22. You can actually read the declassified mm-hmm. documents now, which are very interesting. He like was basically charged with, you know, cleaning all the mud off of this bomb and making sure that it was removed somewhere safe where it could be dismantled. And he wrote, he couldn't tell anybody, obviously, because this was like super classified. And he wrote these letters to his family afterwards where he was like, well, guess what I have been doing for the last eight days? Like, oh my God. So there's a lot of just crazy, crazy shit. As the sort of innocent bystander of Sarah's education and professional career who just sort of learns stuff, (laughs) that you might not otherwise hear about. That's one of the ones that really trips me up about, you know, A, being one of the countries, being a a citizen of one of the countries who knowingly, openly possess nuclear weapons. Was that even in our own soil, on our own soil, by our own troops or or technicians or whomever Mm. are responsible for these weapons? Uh, We've come within a hair's breadth of detonating 
on our own territory, on our own soil, mm-hmm. at our own expense, with no military, uh, inter- you know, re- cause behind it. Um, yeah, friendly so fire kind we're of. Basically, just yeah. dropping a nuke on ourselves or accidentally exploding mm-hmm. uh, weapons that we've created ourselves on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like, of course, if you're a weapon, uh, a country with the weapons, um, that's cap- That's a capability that you have or a risk that you take. Is you know, you could not just be a threat to a foreign country or an adversary or, or or something, but to yourself, which is an interesting perspective that I think a lot of people aren't thinking about. Exactly. In this context of, like, why is it important to reduce our nuclear arsenal or eliminate it altogether? Yeah, take things off hair trigger. And, it's about yeah. us versus them. It's about us versus potentially our own integrity or our own well-being as a country. Yeah, that's such a good point, Brad. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. Thank you for saying that because, I mean, we started this conversation with trying to color the us versus mm. them narrative, but it, it's so true. I mean, with these things just sitting around, like the, the risk is always there. Mm-hmm. It's always, always there. And who's the us and who's the them? I mean, yeah, this is you totally. live in a global society now, and it's not like it's just Americans in the continental United States. I mean, there are plenty of people like... There are Americans who are living all over the world, and there are Americans who live in Russia, and our nukes are trained on Russia, and that's it's the same thing here. I mean, that's just a really kind of, to my mind, baffling, um, you know, psychology and doctrinal approach in a lot of respects um, that doesn't really reflect today's reality. A lot of the us versus them is their government versus ours and vice versa. It's not, mm-hmm. like you said at the very beginning of this conversation, it's not you and me versus our sort of peers, our, you know, people our own age in Russia, they're not the enemy. And a lot of the discord or the relationship or the perceived relationship between these countries is just like our government versus theirs. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe now more than ever as Americans, a lot of us are like, well, this government of ours doesn't represent anything about what we believe or how we actually feel. Don't judge us off them. And I feel like I mean, maybe, optimistically speaking, a generation from now where the Cold War is, you know, really, truly behind us and forgotten, quote-unquote forgotten, you know, and it's it's these people now running the country. Is there a chance that that perception could lead to, in your field in particular, mm. Sarah, um, sort of a widespread change in the look and feel of nuclear the, the nuclear landscape could it be that in generation from now we all realize that that was a ridiculous era in our and both you know countries or all countries who have nuclear weapons could it be that you know we've all sort of looked at the scope of it all and decided that's not for not for us quote unquote in is it, is there a hope there I I mean I hope so but I think a big part of the challenge is that you know people don't feel empowered to talk about these issues they don't they don't understand the vocabulary they're too scared to ask they're not interested they're embarrassed they feel like they're going to seem stupid whatever it is and that's one of the things that makes me the saddest because just as we were talking about I mean it's like regular citizens in the United States in a lot of respects who are going to face the sort of consequences of policy decisions that are made in the nuclear space today down the road when they grow up or when they enter their professional lives. And, you know, whether that means, like, we're spending tons of money modernizing a nuclear arsenal that we could be spending on, you know, I don't know, getting rid of student loan debt or things like that, or 
that you end up joining the military and then somehow you're, you know, responsible for taking on real literal risks dealing with nuclear weapons and handling them. There are just a lot of ways that this has an impact on regular people's lives. And you can feel however you want to about nuclear weapons. But if you're not empowered to, you know, have a conversation about that or express yourself or engage in the you know public discourse on it, I think um, it's it's. Yeah, it's disenfranchising in a lot of ways. Yeah. How much has the current administration changed your day-to-day and your work? Um, For me, it's changed it in that I have to – well, I should preface this by saying that, you know, my professional career has all been in this administration. So when I was a student, uh-huh. it was in the previous administration, okay. but – um, everything that I've done, I started working in my job in 2017, so it has all been under this administration. Um, but I think, I mean, if you're making policy recommendations, you don't have to agree with what the current government is doing, but you do have to think about what would motivate, what arguments would resonate with decision makers who have certain perspectives. And so that has made my work a little bit more challenging in that I can't just say, here is what I think would be the best, most logical decision, and I'm pretty sure that this is also how our our government is approaching things. I have to think a little bit more strategically, like, okay, what, what would actually be um, an argument that would line up with what I know the vision for foreign policy is in the United States today, a vision that puts, you know, America first, okay, how can I devise recommendations that um, where I'm highlighting why this would be in the U.S. interest rather than assuming that everybody is interested in kind of multilateralism and globalism and yeah. and things like that. So it's, it's just I've had to think, I think, differently than is my natural proclivity. That's a very <laughs> diplomatic way of putting it. 2020. <laughs> that was very well spoken. Thank you. Um, hmm. So speaking of presenting yes. and such, um, were you uh, were you more nervous to? Uh, are you more nervous when you address the the UN or when you uh, are being interviewed on CNN or one of these other? TV stations where you're mm. you're sort of you're addressing mm-hmm. deciders mm-hmm. you're addressing the population mm-hmm. oh that's a good question well um in some ways the UN is I mean typically the way that I do it at the UN is I have written remarks and so that I've, I've written myself obviously but that's sort of the mode of doing presentation and then you'll do candid Q&A. Whereas obviously when you're talking to the media, it's a little bit different. And particularly if it's a live interview, it's, you know, you are saying what you're saying. And then there's kind of no putting the genie back in the bottle. Um, Mm -hmm. So that comes with its own sort of element of of, um, being nerve wracking. But um, I mean, I would say my just in general, because so much of what I do is like presentation. I'm I'm much I, I don't feel nervous at all getting up and doing a presentation in front of a group. And I do always have in the back of my mind with media stuff like, okay, well, this is, I've said this and now this is out here in the public and I sure hope I 
got it right because there's no going back. <laughs> so. Wow, that's impressive. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Mm. What is the what is it like that discourse in in the UN? Mm. Um, do you feel like you're in a den of lions, or is it very cordial? Is it's it very um, collaborative? Like, what's that vibe? Um, I think it's cordial. I mean, the way that you it's it's almost always, at least in the four that I work in, a moderated discussion. So okay. there's a person who's chairing, and so nobody is like getting up and shouting and um, you know speaking out of turn or anything like that. It's done in the way you would imagine the UN is done, which is diplomatic. Um, yeah. And even if somebody really disagrees with what you're saying, they do it in a polite way um so i i actually no really like it no no at least not in the fora where i work i mean it could be in some other un bodies but uh-huh. um for for me and in the communities that i kind of interact with it's it's i i like it i mean i think um it's a civil discourse that i like a lot um yeah. and i feel like i am respected for the ideas that i'm putting forward which means yeah, a lot awesome. to me so yeah yeah so a little bit different direction now mm. um this might be a topic you don't want to attack, which is fine. Okay. But um, because your your role is is basically by definition about controlling weapons, mm. I'm curious about if you have any ideas that might carry over to gun control. Oh. Because one thing that I the way I think about it, the way I think about gun control, gun control is on one end of the spectrum we have a nuclear bomb mm-hmm. and on the other end of the spectrum we have a butter knife mm-hmm. and we're squabbling over guns somewhere in the middle of that spectrum mm-hmm. some folks think that there should be you know uh maybe handguns some people think that ak-47s are fine for civilians to have <clears throat> clearly we don't have it figured out clearly mm-hmm. there are issues um do you have any opinions on that that you're comfortable voicing? Do you have any thoughts there? Because that's something that I, I think about often. I mean, I'm, I'm from Texas, mm-hmm. which generally has a certain perspective. Um, I don't... You're pretty woke for a Texan. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had, unfortunately, some personal experiences uh, with guns that has really... I guess made me afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, involving a gun accident, so mm. I have—I don't know. It's just something I think about often, and I was just curious if you have any thoughts there. If not, totally fine. I—I I know that it's not really your area of expertise, but it's not—it's um, not my area of expertise. And in fact, there's actually sort of a—I um, would say, in a lot of respects, a divide between what you know we talk about WMD and small arms and light weapons. And so that is a field that I don't feel like I know a lot about in terms of the kind of policy side of it. I have my own, you know, perspectives as somebody who, like, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania also, and I, you know, I'm liberal, and I have my own thoughts about the ways that I think gun control should work. Um, But in terms of the kind of overlap with the issues that I deal with on a professional basis, the one that comes to my mind most is, you know, there are a lot of countries who we would like to be engaged in the conversation about WMD issues, and they don't feel like they have the bandwidth because they are so preoccupied with 
small arms and light weapons and gun violence and things uh-huh. like that, that they just ca- cannot focus on these issues that are not front and center for them because they're really worried about what to do about gun violence. And I am so sympathetic to that viewpoint. And I think um, those aren't conversations that should be mutually exclusive. They should, you know, violence is violence. And um, you can learn a lot from, I think, hearing about the experience in some countries and trying to kind of deal with and control small arms and light weapons that could be applicable to nuclear weapons and probably vice versa. Um, But it's the gun control debate is interesting because it's it's such a much bigger topic in the sort of domestic discourse in the U.S. And yeah. my topics are not that at all. Yeah. Um, and You're very so, international, focus. right? And yeah. and mm-hmm. I wish I wish sometimes that there was more of a debate about nuclear weapons in the same way that people have passionate views about gun control. Uh-huh. Um, and there just isn't. There isn't that. Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, okay. Very different thing. You love Brad. I, I do love very, okay. very much. The okay. most... Presumably you like... In the world. <laughs> okay. live together, I don't know. His job is very different than yours. It is. Do you... Uh, this is potentially an uncomfortable question for Brad. Oh, God. Okay. Um, do you have any judgment of what he does for a living? No. Why? Um... Because Brad is... He works on grown-up toys. Yeah. Oh, I know, but... I'm a, I'm a professional recreationalist. Yeah. How are you sitting across the table from us and not judging us oh my God. based on what you do? Are you serious? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we have these terrible mustaches. mustaches. The mustaches. <laughs> let me, I will just say that Brad's mustache started as a joke before we even got married, and it it's became, it, it still there. What? It came from what, which is even grosser. Oh, oh, a neared. It was like the grossest. It had been grossed neared. Approximately how long? Oh, some time. I mean, a year. Sometimes. It was like what a, is a neared? winter, like neck a neck beard. Yeah. An apostrophe. Yeah, a neared. It's a technical term, Payson. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar. No, um, yeah, it was really <laughs> sickening. Um, yeah, so it, it started as that. No, I don't. I, I, I think. I mean, we have found the two sort of most niche jobs that a person can do. And you should have heard the toast at our wedding. It was like, well, um, these two have found each other somehow, and they both have these very, very specific jobs that they're somehow able to do in Pleasant Grove, California. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, Brad is the best at what he does of anybody in the world. He is so... Don't say anything. You are. Shut He's it. so, um, you know, meticulous and thoughtful and clever. And she was quiet when you were showering her. With uh, it's exactly. You have to put trap. up with it. Yeah. Um, but really, truly, I mean, it's I. Brad is so um, kind of strategic in his thinking in everything that he does, whether it's we're going out to run errands, what is the most efficient way to do them? <laughs> to, you know, That's my favorite shit to do. Yeah, to like early days working on, remember when um, you were like trying to figure out how to um, like internally route the cables in the um, Cervello in like early, early days and you had to like drill into the frame and stuff like that and there was some really crazy, or maybe it was the DI2, maybe it was like early DI2. But, oh, it was the same. Yeah. But anyway, just, I mean, he's just good at doing things like that and and um, in a way that I'm not at all and so I think um, we have a lot of things about us that are very similar fundamentally about our personalities but our strengths manifest in these two different ways and I 
love seeing the strengths that I do not have in the person that I love. And so I really admire that. Sarah's really good at following rules, and I like to look for ways to break the rules. It's true. And get away with it. That is true. Rules make me feel safe and secure. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have a favorite? Well, you sort of already answered that, actually. So I'm going to let I'll, that I'll rest. say I'll say it m- multiple times if it's something about what I love, what I <laughs> no, love no, about no. my sweet husband. How, do you? How often do you get to attend bike races? I've only ever been to Sea Otter, which is okay. located in what town? <laughs> our our town, adjacent to Pleasant Grove, <laughs> aka <laughs> just over the hill, aka Pacific Grove. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, but I'm going to the Olympics, which is very exciting. Oh, with are my you? parents. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, tickets are booked. Yep, tickets wonderful, are booked. We're going. Wonderful. So, so. Japan, that's a far, that's a faraway place. Yeah, yeah so I will have been like in my own backyard, and then in Japan, and those are the I've never, never a never between a the twain though. shall meet or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, we're sometimes like going to the same country, but not to the same airport. So I remember one time um, we were both at LAX and I had landed and you were departing mm-hmm. and it she was like, what gate are you? Yeah. You happened to be in the same terminal at the same time yep. for 30 minutes. That's yep. cute. Yeah, it's really sweet. Yeah. But yeah, oh, Sarah's it's fun. not to a World Cup yet. Mm-mm. So she's busy doing her own things at the time. Yeah. I'm out and about. Yeah. All right. Yep. Here's kind of a savage question. Okay. Potentially, I'm just assuming <laughs> that was supplied by someone. This <gasps> question does not come from me. Oh my god! Can you name the other riders on the team that Brad works with? Yes, uh, obviously. Okay, we've got Kate, we've got Nino, got Lars. Um, we have Andre. Um, we have. Am I missing how, how many people am I missing? I think that's it. What are the last names? Can you do the last names? Okay, Andre Frischneck, Lars, something, <laughs> Nino Scherter. Yeah, what is Lars' last name? Forster. Oh, God, That's I knew pretty that. Damn Lars, good. Lars, I knew that, I knew that, I knew so that. So Brad texted that. me that, and I think he was he was sort of almost hoping you'd do worse. What? No, I pay attention. No, I, just, I, just, I just wanted to, it's more like me, I could quiz you without having to be the directly responsible person for asking the question. <laughs> That's a very Brad way of doing that, I have to say. But I I'm proud know. of you for the answer. Thank I, thought, you. I thought you might know. I know. And you did most Are there any quizzy questions you'd like to ask Brad? Quizzy questions? Oh, my God. <clears throat> no, I was so impressed with everything he knew and said about nuclear weapons. It made me feel like all these dates that we've gone on where I have just <laughs> blathered God. on and on and on for many hours about my concerns about the state of the world. Actually, Resonated. yeah, another good segue. Generally speaking... Do you feel optimistic or do you feel like you're bailing water mm. in, a, in, a, in a rowboat that has a hole in it? I feel, I mean, I feel optimistic um, because I think I love my colleagues and I feel like there are a bunch of really smart, good people who are working on these issues. But where I feel pessimistic is I think we are potentially facing a personnel crisis in our field where a lot of the senior people are going to retire and there are not new up-and-comers who want to do this work. Interesting. And that makes me feel really nervous because I feel like regardless of how you feel about you know nuclear policy or nuclear policy in the United States, you still need people like warm bodies to do the diplomacy and to do verification and to do stuff like that. And nothing good will come of having a you know leaned out workforce that doesn't have the resources it needs to do its work. So that makes me feel not good. And I just hope um, we can sort of reverse that trend before it becomes 
um, problematic. Yeah. Generally, just in terms of the the, the broader conversation here, mm-hmm. do you feel optimistic or not? Um. It's hard to say. I feel like a lot of people have been making the same arguments for a long, long, long time and not a lot has changed. And I feel like that's discouraging. Um, But I also think if people are successful in getting some new ideas and new voices into the field and a lot of people are truly trying so, so hard to make that happen, not just, you know, the things that I'm doing with gender, but more broadly with sort of diversity and equity and inclusion in our field, I feel like that's the real opportunity to get some new approaches that aren't just a repetition of the same things that we've been doing. And that does make me feel optimistic if we can actually succeed in in making that happen and in bringing those people in and then kind of elevating their voices. If not, I think we're just kind of doomed to repeat, uh-huh. you know, the same, the way things have been going for a long time. Yeah. So... Let's say there are a decent number of people that listen to this show now. Let's say there's just even one mm-hmm. that isn't tied up with a job already, doesn't have a family, maybe is is uh, at a point where they get to decide on a direction. Um, what would you what would you say to them in regards to? applying themselves to maybe some of these issues if if they listen to this this evening all the stuff we talked about and their interest is piked a little bit Mm -hmm. um where might they start or maybe the person that is a mother or a father uh and they just have five extra minutes to read Mm -hmm. and they're curious Mm mm-hmm what, what should of, they read? Yeah, what sort of recommend, recommendations do you have? Where where should people start? Um, well, if people are really, truly interested, they should literally email me mm. because I do that all the time and I talk to people all the time and I'm always happy to carve out 30 minutes and have a conversation with somebody about these issues because I think that's part of my mandate. Where can they email you? Sbidgood at ms.edu. Can we spell M-I-I-S. that out? Yes, M-I-I-S dot E-D-U. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or or yeah or send me a you know dm on twitter or whatever it is but reach out shout out instagram slide into dms slide into my dms on yes uh yeah bit bad 210 it's scintillating a scintillating feed um but uh cats there are cats there's a lot of pictures of me eating dinner to be honest um yeah but seriously no they can always reach out to me um but you know the other thing we we do a lot of kind of educational resources for a group called the Nuclear Threat Initiative, NTI. And I think that they do a really great job of kind of um, helping an educated lay audience get familiar with these issues. So they have like tutorials. You can We do a lot of stuff like we make 3D models of missiles and people can actually look at them. We use a video game software oh, wow. called Blender to make those, um, you know, uh, there are just a lot of we. Some of my colleagues did like a sort of Minecraft, um, you know, tour of like underground bunkers in Russia and the United States that you can. There are zombies you can like go through and look what? at them. So there's a lot of cool stuff that's like really for people who are interested in these issues, but 
want them to be a little bit more accessible or want to know how to start. And they're on you know our website, nonproliferation.org, or on the NTI website, which is nti.org. So I think those are great places to start. Wonderful. Does anything else come to mind? No. She's like, let me out of no, here. No, no, no. I feel like we've this was really wide-ranging and, and great. I think we had a good conversation thank you so much i honestly did not intend to take that much of your time but i couldn't really help i mean look where we are now pleasant grove is Mm -hmm. popping it's bright with moonlight it's almost as good as it is in the daytime yeah yeah well thank you all so much thanks for letting me invade i really really enjoyed this thank you so did i it's great (laughs) i also did good brad thank you good night Thank you all for listening, and thank you to 99PlusCBD for being presenting partner of this show. I don't know about y'all, but I'm working on my house now because I have time to, and that's a really good way to get sore in weird areas. Um, Also, just kind of adapting my strength training program to be homebound, you know, kind of having to bring in some new moves and different ways of doing things because we're all stuck at home. That's another surefire way to get some weird soreness going. And I have to assume I'm not the only one in that boat. If y'all have uh, some aches and pains going on, that's good. That means you are continuing to work hard. I like that. But be sure to take care of yourself. Pick up some 99 plus at 99.plus slash Payson for 20% off. Get yourself some bath bombs. Those are wonderful after a long day of scraping popcorn ceiling off of the ceiling. Get yourself some salves. Very nice for, for example, I was doing split leg leaps for the first time in a long time a couple days ago. Oh my goodness. So sore. Or just get some of the capsules. Those are money um, in regards to trying to sleep. And to be totally honest, I'm usually pretty immune to anxiety. I'm innately a very optimistic and positive person, but it's really hard not to be pulled down just a little bit and and fret a little bit now and then when we're all just getting slammed over the head with negativity in the news and the doom and gloom of this whole situation. So I won't uh, I won't lie about the fact that I've spent a couple nights tossing and turning more than I would like, and those 99 plus capsules go a long way in helping me sleep better. Highly recommended. 99.plus slash Payson for 20% off. Thank you, Lily McKelvin, for being the editor and producer of this show. Things are pretty whacked out in Europe right now, that's for damn sure. She's hunkered down, but continuing to churn out these all-star edits. Thank you for doing that, Lily. If y'all would go subscribe to the show, it would be wonderful. That way you never miss an episode. If you're not subscribed to the show, sometimes on iTunes, the new show doesn't pop up for a day or two. I don't know why that is, but if you're subscribed, you'll be able to see it immediately. Also, please leave a comment in iTunes or wherever else you can leave comments. That goes a long way. And uh, give us a five-star review. Lastly, spread the word virtually via Skype, via Zoom, via whatever social interaction you are managing these days share this podcast around um 
not this episode specifically, could be this episode, could be any of our episodes. If you haven't listened to all of our episodes, I know we're, we're constantly picking up new listeners and um, it's always fun to hear how people go back through the catalog and dig up old episodes. And we say, see that on our end. I mean, uh, every day, even episode one picks up lots of listens um, every day and that's always satisfying. Uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary, y'all. We have something special planned, very special, launching something new. Hint, more than audio. Stay tuned. See you next Tuesday.